Thanks for tuning in to Voices in DevOps. If you enjoy this podcast, please check out John's reports and blogs on gigaohm.com, where he covers all things DevOps, data, and strategy, addressing many of the topics covered in Voices in DevOps. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Voices in DevOps, where I'm going to be speaking to Andrew Phillips. And, and we've had a, a bit of a discussion already about how to describe you, Andrew, because sure, you work for Google, but at the same time, um, it, you've, you've got lots of background uh, all around DevOps and all around open source and all around all these topics for, for various people. And um, and that's really what I want to pick your brain about. But how, how would you describe yourself and, and how did you get to the point where you describe yourself like that. Uh, thanks very much, John. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, so yeah, my name is Andrew Phillips. Uh, I, and I work for Google Cloud. Uh, I, I guess the, the, the jokey statement I usually make is that I've kind of suffered around all sides of the software development and DevOps space. Um, I've been a developer for most of my uh, career. I was then a, a sort of sales engineer frontline ended up being the, the head of PowerPoint, aka VP of strategy for a company that commercially sold application release automation software into the enterprise, so seen a lot of that. And um, obviously that discussion ends up being not just a product discussion, but very much a transformational, like how do we actually make this stuff work discussion. Um, then went and uh, did a stint as the head of duct tape, aka head of infrastructure for an AI company, which was all very lovely, hands-on, cloud, cloud. I love these descriptions, around. <laughs> trying to accelerate teams, um, um, and yeah, now now at Google, um, with with a very interesting dual perspective of you know obviously what what customers trying to adopt the cloud are doing and uh, and how we can help them with that, but also of course uh, some of the things that Google does internally and what one can take from that and learn and distill and maybe take it out um, into the market in terms of some of the practices Google has. I've you know, I know I know lots of people in the space. Um, for what it's worth, uh, I've organised for my sins um, a couple of events called Container Days, um, which, which all I can say is that if you ever try to organise a community event, it's much more work than you think it is, and it, it is gratifying if you're into that kind of stuff. But it's a huge amount of work. Um, it's and, and uh, I mean, I guess as a, as a final wrap up, maybe is um, you know, I've 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 seen and and, and have. Have opinions one way or the other on the the product versus process versus culture uh, triangle, which is obviously not a new triangle. It applies to DevOps as much as it applies to Agile, as much as it applies to any one of the many initiatives that we try to go through. Um, and I think uh, I think if you like the nugget that we'll hopefully explore a little bit in this conversation um, is that it's easy to take a kind of dogmatic stance, um, uh, and 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 the, the the real challenge is you know how how do we find a good balance between what we would ideally like to achieve in any company, which is like magically transform them to be super efficient and great and whatever, um, given the constraints of the industry that we live in, uh, mm -hmm. which is that there are only so many uh, experts to go around. Um, and, you know, there are only so many companies that can hire, um, you know, hundreds of new people and pay them large salaries to, to just sit and fix problems. Um, and that there are just very many different ways in the industry of tackling IT and how, how it's addressed, and that you have to take that into account as you try to figure out what things like DevOps mean to you. I hope we didn't cut to the chase there too much. I hope we no, get no, a no, good chance good. to talk some of those in more detail. 
at, at the risk of starting a massive digression, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this this skills thing because um, on the one hand, we're told, oh, it's all, all more and more automated and we're all going to be out of jobs and, you know, blue collar, white collar, it doesn't matter. Uh, automation mm. is the name of the game. On the other hand, we've got this sort of global skills shortage of programmers, of data scientists, of uh, anyone that can get their heads around all of this stuff that apparently is automating everything. So it's, it's kind of... Uh, I don't think it's a paradox, but certainly uh, it's two lemmas uh, playing against each other. Yeah, I think, I mean, and again, yes, at, at the risk of a digression, but I think a fascinating one. I mean, I think there's the, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, there's the, 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 the small version and, and, and the large version of this, and that, that sounds very cryptic. Um, what I mean is that if we take a very DevOps or specific example, um, and if you look at like Dora's um, state of DevOps research, and it's fun, I get to work with, with Gez and Nicole quite closely now because obviously Dora now being part of Google, um, but I've known both of them for, for a while. Um, I think, you know, there's this elite category and we know, you know, elite has lots of good outcomes and lots of good options and so on. But what, of course, you know, the realistic question is, does everybody need to get to elite in an ideal world? Yes. but but. You know, how well can you do? How much bang for your buck, if you like, do you get if you if you only get halfway? And and what is the realistic trade-off there? I mean, the the sort of continuous delivery or the DevOps version of this is that in an ideal world, every commit would ship to production flawlessly in five seconds. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think that's the wrong goal to have. I mean, I, I the my my phrase is something like you shouldn't ship as often as you as fast as you can, but as fast as you need. Um, and that raises a much more interesting question, which is, well, how often do I actually need to? Um, because that really depends on your industry, on your competitors, and all these kind of things. And I think the same goes for, for this DevOps or digital transformation, as Gartner would call it. Sorry to name drop um, one of your uh, one of your uh, co uh, uh, co. Some, of, my, the some of their best friends work for Gartner. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, and and uh, uh, GigaOM, I'm sure, has a has their own phrase for this particular transformation. Um, I think there's, you know, at one level, there's this idea that every company must become an IT company. Um, um, and, and as you said, taken to the extreme, that would mean that we would presumably need 10 times the amount of skilled IT professionals that we have today in the world. Um, and it's clear that the pipeline isn't growing by 10x to produce those. So at some point, there's either a choice between, you know, for any company, for any CEO, do you want to be in that rat race? Uh, do you want to pay ever-increasing salaries? Do you want to do whatever it takes to get those people? Um, mm -hmm. Or do you make some kind of determination that you say, well, maybe I'm, you know, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to have the fancy innovation lab with the cappuccino machines and the scooters and the segways or whatever. Like, obviously, I'm, I'm stereotyping a little bit. Um, I will thus lose some potential as a result. Um, but is that an acceptable trade-off? Mm. Um, you know, I think I think there will just have to be some kind of spectrum of uh, you know IT whiz kiddery excellence, whatever we want to call it. And I think um, only exploring the extreme end of the spectrum and saying, well, that's what you could where you could go is not a really helpful uh, a really helpful guidance for the market because you're you're basically saying everybody has to fight over what is at the end of the day an incredibly small morsel. Um, and I think if you look at if you look at the path or if you look at it more as a sort of spectrum, there are definitely points on the spectrum that are not quite in the elite wizardry space where simple adoption of a bunch of relatively well-known processes and tools that you can well, somewhat dogmatically apply 
um, can get you a lot of the way. It won't get you to the top end, but I mean, I think it, it's giving people more choices about making smart trade-offs between what they can achieve and what they need to get out of this transformation um, and allowing them to say, well, maybe, maybe we only need to get to level three, you know, whatever that may mean. The phrase um, just popped into my head, Chief Trade-Off Officer, which is horrible. Well, something, <laughs> something like that, yes. And I think, I think that is a big, that is a big, um, that's a kind of a big missing, missing step. But we have a reasonably good understanding and description of, I wouldn't call it Nirvana necessarily, but of you know, really sophisticated practices. And we have some good data now, relatively solid, to indicate that that's really worthwhile if you can get there. Um, but I think we don't have a good trade-off matrix or a, a sort of cost-benefit function of various points along the way. So th this does make me think, actually, because before we before we actually hit the record button on on this mm -hmm. podcast, I said I was talking about those cloud-native people who got it all sussed, and enterprises can mm -hmm. can struggle though they've got some pockets of excellence. Uh, mm -hmm. Then, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, am I just being completely? Um, uh, Prejudiced is too strong a word, but am I being too kind of um, categorizing in terms of those cloud native? I mean, are these trade offs that we're talking about here as much of a, a challenge for people to get their heads around in a world where people are doing DevOps as a, a standard thing? Or so are the challenges the same wherever you go, or is this a, more of an enterprise end of the scale kind of, kind of thing where they need to understand trade offs? Um, well, I mean, I think, uh, part of the challenge with, with, these, with, with some of these questions is you know, doing DevOps as a standard thing, of course, opens up the enormous can of worms of what DevOps actually means. Um, but I think I mean, to, this, to the sense that there is a difference between enterprises and, and maybe smaller companies, it's largely a, a factor of the, the, the volume and existence and complexity of the systems that you already have. I mean, I think one very obvious, uh, unsurprising data point is that a lot of these practices um, are much easier to adopt in a greenfield scenario mm -hmm. uh, because you know there, there's, there's still lots of challenges. I mean, I, I guess the, the the biggest and most standard one, and this is again not saying anything new, the DevOps communities. There've been tons and tons of books written and seminars held, and you know, the DevOps Enterprise Forum does a does a good job of covering this topic around like security and audit. Um, you know, how at the end of the day, in, in a lot of uh, enterprises, there is some level of, you know, five years ago, we went through the audit process and we convinced someone that this particular checklist of stuff was acceptable and that our current setup met this checklist. And um, the last thing we want to do is to move our architecture into the cloud where we would have to go through the same exercise again. Um, and that has nothing to do with that. That's just one of those sort of classic, ex, almost an externality, the things that sort of stop, uh, make well, barriers in the way of adopting some of the new stuff. I think, um, yes, in a greenfield situation, like if you've got a new app that you're building um, and, and a, a bunch of relatively sufficiently skilled engineers, um, you can totally uh, make that work. And yes, you still have some security stuff to go through and so on and so forth. But um, you can adopt all these nice practices. You can adopt a bunch of modern tooling. You can get lots of nice benefits out of that. Um, the reality, of course, is, is that new or greenfield work in, in any large enterprise represents usually but a tiny fraction of the systems landscape. Um, it might represent where you're doing, you know, where, where you're 
innovating is like it's, it's the frontier of your your application portfolio um but you know most companies don't know or what i don't hear people saying is like and and then you know other analysts have talked about multimodal bimodal kind of things but but the, the reality is saying like okay uh, we want to scope our ambitions down to a particular subset of our work and try to calculate an ROI based on that, as opposed to imagining this world in which you've kind of moved everything that you have into the cloud except for the mainframe, pretty much. Um, those are two totally different things. Um, and and you know the idea of saying, you know, well, we also want to do DevOps for our ERP system um, that is you know, some huge monolith of, of manuals and instructions, and you know we got bunches of consultants in to update it and so on. That's like a totally different kettle of fish from, um, well, we know that we have a portfolio of new work that we need to do coming up in the next whatever six months or year or whatever, um, and we want to optimize that bit. Um, and then making those kind of choices. Sorry, and stop there. Go on. No, no, no. You, you, you go on. I don't, want to, I don't want to interrupt you, but um. No, no, no. I, 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 mean, I want to. At stop, the I same exactly. time, at the same time, yeah. I have a question in there, which, which is uh, linking back to what you were saying before about trade-offs, because one of the things mm -hmm. that I hear quite often, I'm sure you hear quite often, is mm -hmm. the notion of culture change. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're, if you're going to want to do any of this, but sooner or later the conversation turns up, and of course you've got to do the culture change. And mm -hmm. um, it kind of implies that, you know, uh, we, we could insert anything into this conversation. It, it's uh, um, mm -hmm. yeah, eating better, let's say. You've got you to have your five a day. Yeah, just have five a day. But sooner or later, you're going to have to have your culture change. Um, and what, what you're saying, what you're suggesting is that uh, when you were talking about trade-offs, that Sure, there may there is a need for organisations to get their heads around uh, what's going on here in terms of agility from the top level, etc. We can have that conversation, but equally, mm -hmm. it needs the the tools, the approaches, the methodologies, uh, the DevOpsy stuff can mm -hmm. also uh, be needs to flex to fit the needs of the organisation. It isn't a kind of monolithic DevOps that the organisation has to has to change in order to accommodate. It, yeah, I mean, both, yes, I think both, that's true. Both sides need to be flexible. Yes, that's true, and I mean, I think this is you know this goes back to uh, uh, before we were before we started the recording, we were talking about our respective backgrounds in things like ITIL and Agile. I mean, I think this is you know th those are two interesting examples because um, you know ITIL very prescriptive, like there's a book, you read it and you follow it and and you implement it. Um, and then you typically buy some very expensive toolkit from some vendor that has all the, you know, way too complicated 7 million forms and so on. And then, you know, you think you've done ITIL because you've installed the toolkit and forced everyone to use it. Um, and then there's Agile or, or DevOps for that matter, which, which in essence are a, basically a set of, a set of guidelines for, for making trade-offs. Um, that's not the common phrasing, but, but that's really what they are. They are, intentionally much less much less prescriptive you can't you can become an, an agile certified scrum master but you know you can't or you know what ended up happening where people said agile is downloading an issue tracker and uh, standing up at nine in the morning and having a meeting with post-it notes and, and making the post-it note providers rich is not that's not actually agile um, that's you know, agile in name only or whatever you want to call it. Um, oh, very good. 
the um, and, and that, that, you know, you, it, it's very easy. It's, it's very you know, it's kind of it's a bit childish to be skeptical about that and go, oh, well, they don't get it and so on and so forth. The reality is that um, embedding yourself deeply in a philosophy um, and then having both the the you know the skill, but also the the, the freedom of, of action, like the, the authority to adopt to uh, uh, both adopt the philosophy to your organization and where necessary to adopt your organization to the philosophy that's that's a really complicated and hard thing and that requires somebody at the top to basically give you the flexibility to do that um most of the time what can be done pretty easily in organizations is approving the purchase of particular tools and instituting relatively detailed but not hugely transformational processes and eking as much benefit out of that as you can possibly get and yes, you know, if, if the only thing you do out of Agile is you try to think in more short-term iterations and you don't do much else of the stuff like the sort of that, that wrangle between the business and, and, the, and engineering and making trade-offs every now and then, it's like you still get some benefit. And I think that the same kind of goes for DevOps. Like there's, there's a number of kind of checkbox items that you can do for DevOps, like you know, think about better automation for your infrastructure. Basically recognize that, you know, that the big shift in the industry has been that um, you can now do all the platform work as code. Um, it's no longer uh, rack and stack. It's actually software development, um, just software at a different level. Um, and all the practices that we've learned about software engineering come with that. Um, and uh, because everything is now software, it makes more sense as well to you know, assume that the people who write the software that's a little bit higher up in the stack have a little bit more understanding and insight of the software that's a little bit lower down in the stack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's lots of things that you can do there um, that are relatively checkboxy that don't require you to like radically change, for instance, the way your reporting structure works, um, who, you know, whether developers and operations people ultimately end up reporting to the same person, whether they're measured by the same metric, all the things that are probably necessary to get to a more, uh, more advanced stage, because at the end of the day, um, fundamentally what DevOps is about is recognizing that, you know, it's not about safety and speed choose two. There is an essential tension between those two, which is understandable. And your job as a company is to try to figure out where the balance should lie. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, how does that work? Well, typically it does not work if you take two different groups of people, make each one responsible for one or the other, and um, go even further and incentivize them with a performance system or a bonus system or whatever um, to, for one team to look after one and for the other to look after the other. But to get to a point where you are able to understand that there is this trade-off between how to make something, how to, how to be quick and scrappy and how to be safe and reliable, um, that is an organizational decision that you need to make. And somebody needs to say, okay, well, at, at some point I'm going to join these two organizations up and I'm going to make them report to the same person. And that person's job is to make the trade-off. Um, oftentimes, you'll go into organizations, and the, the, the join point is the CEO, um, who can't make that call because it's way too technical at the end of the day. And so there are some practices. You know, Google does error budgets, which I think is a very nice, low-level technical way of doing this, which is basically about saying, you know, we can agree up front um, that we want to hit this kind of metric for reliability, availability, latency, whatever we care about. And if you exceed that, you can, as a development team, you can do whatever you like. Um, but if you exceed this limit, then you stop working on features and you start 
fixing stuff so that it's safe. Um, I'm nodding sagely here um, and uh, not, not wanting to interrupt you, but I do recognize that we, we've probably got five minutes left. Uh, okay. And one of the things I wanted to cover with you, and you know, we, we, we can do another one of these by, by all means, but one of the things I wanted to cover with you was the role of open source within all of this. Mm -hmm. um, so from the point of view of um, freeing up resource, so everything we talked about and making a balance, safety, speed, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and, and things in name only versus actually you know, adopting the principle. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that have, has given people a real a lead is the ability to mm -hmm. just pick up and run with open source based platforms. And so they haven't mm -hmm. really had, uh, they haven't felt they've got the legacy because they've just been using, using stuff off the, off, you know, off the web, if you like. Um, mm -hmm. but, but maybe I'm overstating it. I mean, it, how important do you think has open source been as a kind of catalyst for more flexible practices just because people haven't had to worry about waiting for procurement to deliver tools that are already out of date or am i overstating this well so i think open, open source has been a huge you know a huge contributor but also a, a correlated factor like it's been a huge contributor in the sense that just as with agile um this this has largely been, or it's taken a while for this to become a top-down decision. Like, you know, and, and, and arguably you could say that it would never have become a top-down decision if there hadn't been a decent amount of companies that could demonstrate how successful it was what they were doing. And in if you look at very, very many of the original success cases, this was not some enlightened CEO or CTO turning around saying, we're going to do it this way. This was individual teams uh, playing around with stuff, solving problems for their particular environment or their particular niche, discovering that worked really well, um, and then that spreading within an organization. And that kind of stuff typically doesn't work, or it's much, much easier to do if you can try things out, if you can learn from others by downloading and using the same tools, if you don't have to go through complicated procurement processes or build complicated ROI use cases or those kind of things. So I think open source was instrumental both in terms of um, allowing teams to bootstrap and uh, the flip side, allowing them to contribute their learnings back into the community in a sort of snowball procedure. Because what happens, of course, is like, you, you know, you, you try this stuff with, with the first set of tools and then you discover that they don't work, work really well. And if you're really lucky, you can sneak off some time and you can build another tool that either glues things together better or that's just a better version of the tool that already exists. And then that goes back into the community to feed more improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think now we've obviously got to the point where um, there's a recognition that we will just do this. Um, and, in, and now in some sense, open source is a bit of a blessing and a curse at the same time, because there's so many tools out there, the companies are now faced with a sort of the paradox of choice. Mm. Difficult to figure out which the right ones are. Um, I think the other thing, the other thing about DevOps and, and, and maybe Agile, also, um, is that they were not vendor-driven initiatives, right? Um, typically, one of the things that the commercial software does, um, and, and let's, 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 add, let's add one, one element here. Um, there are still some, some pockets, even in a very DevOpsy shop, um, where commercial software is 
very common. I would say APM is one of those examples. Um, uh, alerting, paging, um, chat messaging, Slack, those kind of tools. Mm-hmm. Like it, there, there are still there's still lots of space um, for services, but they typically SaaS services, classic pay as you go, cloudy type stuff. So um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that DevOps works with OSS only. Uh, at the end of the day, DevOps works with all kinds of tools only. But it, it, DevOps works well with point tools. Uh, like HashiCorp is a great example of that. And and what we're seeing now, of course, with the enterprise, now that it's, it's becoming more of a, oh, give me some DevOps, you know, the sort of top-down mandate style adoption of DevOps, there is definitely a space opening in the market for vendors who say, well, I'll give you DevOps in the box. Um, no matter that that's actually a contradiction in terms in some sense, it's good enough for a lot of people because it gives you um, it, it gives you some some basic good practices that you can adopt pretty easily without having to think too much about the philosophy. Um, and as we said earlier, that's not going to get you to an elite level, no way. But it's going to get you somewhere from where you are now. That's and, and that, interesting. I mean, that's the, good enough for a lot of them. That Don't, that that good enoughness. Um, I'm I'm feeding this back in because. From the top down, there's, as you know, business consulting world talks about fail fast as kind of uh, almost the imposition of agile on people that don't feel comfortable with it. So they've had to come up with the ways of talking about it that make it sound uh, sexy. But the, sure. what you're talking about with open source is, uh, and the, the philosophy of adopting open source is that kind mm-hmm. of try it out, learn, see if it's the right thing. And it's, it, it, it's not that people are doing it because they're told to, it's because that's what you do when you've got a, 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 um, a smorgasbord of options out there. You just sort of have a go with a few things and then you find one that works. And so you end up in this state of mind where you're testing stuff out and striking those balances, as you say, and, and understanding the trade-offs. You're doing it from the get-go because, uh, well, you're just in the middle of a, a big uh, sandpit full of toys. So that's that's how, that's how you're going to end up. Yeah, no, exactly. And there, there are, fa- I mean, there's a failure mode here too, right? I mean, so now if we, if we inject a little bit of Google lessons, um, there is a, I like to call it the, um, uh, there's, there's a local optimum. So, okay, I mean, uh, this unfortunately is a topic that probably deserves another entire discussion, but I, I want to maybe just inject this because I think it's very important. Um, having too much diversity in your tooling landscape it also applies to your process, but your tooling landscape effectively as well is, is a, a local optimum in which is easy to get stuck because there's a very, very common pattern we see, and we see lots of enterprises trying to get out of it, and it's very unclear how to get out of it. You start with a situation which you're stuck, uh, whether it's because it takes eight months to provision a VM or, or whether it's because you don't have the right people or whatever, um, and you can kind of unblock this by you know either getting in some consultants or by giving development teams access to the cloud or whatever. And you see an immediate benefit because you know they've got access to a bunch of stuff they didn't have before. They're starting to use tools that are just faster in terms of turnaround time, virtualization. They use some new practices that are not so heavyweight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those development teams will typically optimize for whatever their particular problem is. You know, they'll choose a stack that works for their app, or they'll choose a, a process that works for the, the, the org that they're in, or whatever. Um, and that starts out very successful. Um, and you know that sort of spreads like a little bit of a wildfire or you know, the sort of thousand flowers bloom kind of thing. Yeah. And then you end up in a situation where lots and lots of teams have created local optima for themselves. 
And you're now in a situation where things are pretty good, but you know you still have 800 different ways of deploying your applications, which means that you know they're all failing in slightly different ways, and um, you have you know 150 or 200 instances of Jenkins are all configured differently, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what you what 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 happens at the companies that go beyond there? The vast majority of them they then try to standardize and generalize. Now, they try, to, they try to look at what they've created and they try to come up with a sort of golden path that should work for 80 or 90% of their use cases. Um, and so they, they try to create this sort of, I wouldn't say centralized, but standardized approach that tries to optimize for what they've learned in their company. But of course, it's very hard to persuade people to get onto it because I've got something that works for me now and whilst I might theoretically accept that what you're giving me is better, um, it requires work for me to migrate, which why would I do it? Because I've got something already. And more than likely, there's one or two things that I've kind of grown to love that don't work in this standardized stack, because after all, it's a, it's a generalization. And so you're stuck. Nobody wants to come down off their little local optimum hump and invest the time and effort to migrate. Um, and the problem then is, is that you know, if you look at things like what Google or Goldman or, or Twitter or a bunch of these other elite companies do, they can afford to invest serious engineering resources in, for instance, improving test result. You know, I mean, the time it takes to, to return test results to a developer. Nice metric for your efficiency or your speed of feedback. Um, if you can improve that by 5%, for any given development team, 5% probably isn't worth the effort. If you can improve it 5% across the board and you've got thousands of developers, that's a huge number. But you can only improve it 5% across the board if people run all their tests in a relatively same way. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and so coming up with a standardized way of doing, you know, standardized way of setting up your developer environment, a standardized set of languages to work, a standardized set of conventions about how you write code, how you operate it, where your logs go, uh, what your infrastructure looks like, what your runtime, blah, 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 all the things. Um, Having a small subset of those has huge, gives you huge opportunity to, to really ramp up on the automation. And you can go as far, and something Google does, for instance, like you can hire data scientists to build ML models to automatically suggest code improvements. But that works if your code is sufficiently standardized that the, the, the money you're investing in this team to build the improvement model actually pays for itself. Um, and so, yeah, I think one thing we have to figure out as an industry is how to get off that local optimum hump. And, and going back to what we were saying earlier, that good enough might be fine. Maybe the local optimum hump is indeed good enough, right? So I think it's, not everybody has to try to get off it. Um, but I think where we can get to as a kind of maturity step is to say we can recognize that this is the standard path to eliteness, if you like, um, and that it's a legitimate decision for everyone to make. We can go to the local optimum stage, pretty clear how to do that. I mean, it's not easy, but there's a fairly well-trodden path to get there. And then we can ask ourselves whether we want to go to the next step and we can have a little bit of a better picture of what the investment is that's required to get there and whether we want to be, or we can afford to be the kind of company that's willing to do that. That's interesting. I mean, the, I, I'm hesitant to use the term Pareto principle, but I'm going to anyway. Um, and, uh, but what you're talking about as well is this, uh, situation where people are 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 in a good place 
but it's becoming more and more fragmented as as it grows from that good place and it just feels harder and harder to stay in that good place so it, it's like they were already starting with the 20 percent, but as they it's the law of diminishing returns rather than the Pareto principle in that in that case but i i feel as an industry where it, the 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 kind of standardization across the board is it it, it it's like tantalizingly over there uh mm-hmm. it's something it's something we've got to agree um, I say we, not me specifically, but we as an industry have to have to agree uh, in broader terms so that we can kind of start to lock down some of the bits that are seriously standard across everyone in the finance industry doing fraud or everyone trying to add AI to the to the testing process or, or whatever specific best practice or area we're looking at. It's over there. It's not quite in here yet. No, definitely not. And I think I think that is maybe a stretch goal. I mean, I think... A first worthwhile stepping stone is to say, within the context of my organization, or maybe even my department, or whatever the scope of control is that I have, standardization pays off there. Obviously, so it doesn't have to be that every company has the same standard. That would be obviously even more ideal because then it starts to become worthwhile for people like vendors to come in and try to solve some of these problems for you. Um, Because there's, you know, there's enough scope for them to sell into multiple companies. But you know, even if every company ends up choosing a different relatively standard programming language or subset of programming languages or subset of testing tools or whatever it happens to be, um, even within the scope of your organization, that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Um, and, and yes, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, well, you know, we will never come up with the one programming language that is perfect for every use case. And thus, we are unlikely to come up with the software development lifecycle that is perfect for every company. Um, but each company for themselves can at least ask themselves, uh, what are we going to do here? And then, you know, it's not as though people don't get this. Like every single large enterprise I've spoken to has some team somewhere called developer excellence or IT architecture or DevOps uh, center of competence or whatever they're called, who are trying to figure out what this standard stack should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is what is often challenging and missing is the the business plan for how to get teams onto that stack? Because it's all very well to have the stack, but but then if you have to do this complicated carrot and stick game, where it's usually a lot of carrot and very little stick, because you're afraid to use the stick because you know developers might leave, and then the last thing you want to do is this very precious resource to leave. And how big is the carrot? Well, it kind of depends. Like, it, of course, for the for new teams, the carrot is, is really big because otherwise they'd have to do it themselves. Uh, but for existing teams that have stuff, the carrot doesn't look all that interesting. Um, so it's 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 like coming up with a you know coming up with a more standardized template for this particular path. Like, mm. find a local optimum. Uh, Build a standard, and then here's how you actually get that standard adopted within your company. And these are the types of carrots you can use, and these are the types of sticks you can use. And you have to mentally sign up for that. You know, that kind of, I feel that every company goes through that sort of somewhat agonizing, uh, soul searching uh, process over and over again, and they end up kind of rediscovering it. Whereas I think we could, we could make that meta pattern a bit more of a standard procedure That's in the industry. I mean, I think, and I think that's a really good uh, point to to finish on, if I may. Um, uh, this sure. this notion of a business case for standardisation uh, 
is that, that there's so much in there that we could unpack and probably the best way to unpack it is literally to play this whole podcast in reverse. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, if you start from there, I think is what you're saying, mm-hmm. just what's the business value of standardizing, then a lot of things kind of come out of that question, which uh, which really deserve an answer. Yes, I think that is absolutely true. And I, I will resist the temptation to dive in a lot there and talk about <laughs> the metrics you might need. That's for another time. Okay, well, fa- thank you very much. But that's certainly for another time. And we'll certainly pick up that point. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for, for speaking to me. And I look forward to that. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Don. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in DevOps, please check out the other ones. Scaling DevOps for the Enterprise is the focus of a recent report John wrote for GigaOM Research. To find out more about how digital transformation is evolving, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future forward advice on IT operations and business strategies.